I hope you're all doing well and um, not feeling the cold too much. One of the things I've learned about when you turn 40 is you really do think about what socks you wear in the mornings. So it's, um, I'm thinking more and more just about what socks put on in the morning, nice thick ones. I actually went and bought myself thick ones. So um, sign of my age, I think. Um, hopefully um, we'll get as cozy as we can this morning. It's, uh, it's good to continue this theme, following Jesus in all of life. Um, and so what we want to do is go through these um, six practices that help define the way of Jesus. We want to walk f- f- further into um, our uh, sonship and, and our true destiny, which is God's desire for our lives to be shaped after him. We've read this verse time and time again over the last few weeks, that Jesus, the Son, stands first in the line of humanity restored, and we see the original intended shape of our lives there in him. And so we want to continue to walk into increasing Christ-likeness. And what we have um, been trying to, um, I suppose, propose is that we just don't want to believe in Jesus. We do want to do that, but we don't just want to believe in Jesus, what he did for us on the cross, and remember it just simply as an act that happened in the past that relates to a time in our past. But we want to live into the present reality of the cross. The cross is timeless in that regard. It comes to us and the power of it by the Spirit can come to us every day in order for us to walk into the way of Jesus, to become like him. Jesus asked us to do nothing less than to follow him into that life. And so what we really want to encourage us um, as a community and as a, as a church to do and as individuals is to live more fully into the everyday of that in our lives. And so we've looked at these first three um, key practices, prayer and worship, creativity, hospitality, and generosity. And today we're going to go on and look at compassion and justice. And we've put these two words together, compassion and justice, because we feel like they kind of need to go together. Um, there's certain distinctives about compassion as a word and justice as a word. There, there are, and we'll maybe unpack a little bit of that. But they kind of lead to the same place in the heart of God. And so it's a bit like a double barrel, if word, if you like, the way we're looking at compassion and justice. Because when we separate compassion and justice in, our, in human terms and with a human agenda, it starts to lose its divine purpose, and it starts to get a little bit weird, I find. And um, and so in our questionnaire, somebody wrote at the bottom, um, I sub- this put something like, if compassion is the motivator, maybe justice is the goal. And uh, I kind of like that, because that's getting at what we're talking about, because what we're going to see is the essence, <clears throat> um, the essence of the justice of God is compassion and kindness. The very essence of God's justice is compassion and kindness. In the end, God's will will be done. Justice will be done. But the means of working that out come through a God who can't not not be compassionate. And so um, we're going to look a little bit at start this morning as we look at this topic, looking at the character of God. Is that okay? We want to look at his, his character first and foremost, so that we can get a right view and right thinking about what we mean when we talk about compassion and justice. Because justice and compassion are used a lot today in the public square, but not necessarily on God's terms, right? So for example, you only have to look at some of the recent things that we've been praying about in uh, our national 
government, not government sort of thing. Yeah, we've been talk. We, we only have to look at that to see the way the word justice is used, right? So both sides, if you like, and we don't want to get caught up necessarily in sides, but both sides of the argument use the word justice. Right? So who was right? right? So bo- both sides of right-wing and left-wing kind of politics today are using the word justice. Uh, who, who, who's right? And I, I, what I'm saying today is I think we need to trans, uh, transcend, that's the word I was looking for, transcend both of those kind of ideologies or partisan politics. We have to transcend both of them and look right into the heart of God for us as the church and as the people of God to understand really what justice and compassion is. You with me? Good. So let's do that, will we? Let's look at compassion and justice because it's clear throughout the Bible that God is a just God. He does what is right according to his righteousness. All his ways are perfect, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 32. All his ways are just, yeah? I feel like I'm going to like open the mission praise here and start singing Ascribe Greatness, yeah? To our God, the rock, yeah? His work is perfect and all his ways are just. He's a just God. He does what is right, okay? According to his rightness. Not, not even just our rightness. You see, not to get off on one here, but when mankind ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were trying to work out and know more than what they needed to know. Yeah? And they, they've got now got, because of sin, a skewed view of actually what is good. Not just what is evil, but what is good. Because they ate of a tree that they didn't need to eat of, right? Because all his ways are just. Um, okay? Uh, it goes on to say in Deuteronomy chapter 10, these are just some, some. Um, oh, I've forgotten one here. Sorry, an important one. Have, have I? Yes, I have forgotten. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Now think about that. So God is a throne. We know that, don't we? But the foundations of God's throne are righteousness and justice. Right Right at the heart of who God is. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the sojourner or the foreigner giving him food and clothing, right? That's, it's not just New Testament. This is Old Testament stuff, right? This is way back when fatherless and widows weren't looked after, okay? This was kind of radical stuff back then, thousands and thousands of years ago. Isaiah 61, for, the Lord, I, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. Already we see justice weaving with compassion, don't we? Right, so already we're seeing if God is a God of justice, but he executes that for the fatherless and the widow, already we're seeing justice woven together with compassion. He thinks about the widow. He thinks about the fatherless. He thinks about, he has compassion for them and he executes justice for them. In other words, um, in other places, he calls himself a father to the fatherless, right? And a defender of the widows, now, you think how you introduce yourself. I'm Alan. I am married to Rachel. I, I, I work for a church. My job is to be a pastor or whatever. God's Facebook bio, thank God he doesn't have Facebook, right? But if he did have a Twitter profile or a Facebook bio, 
God's name for himself, his bio would be a father to the fatherless, right? And a defender of the widow. That's how God makes himself known to the world, right? God is a God of justice and a God of compassion. And so what we realize in the Bible that justice is not just about a rallying call to certain economic or political issues. It may well result in that, and we may well get into some of them today or probably maybe more next week. But fundamentally, justice, what I want us to try and get before we move on this morning, because I think this is really crucial to our understanding of this, justice is linked intricately to the righteousness of God. Justice and righteousness, and that big word righteousness just really means the rightness of God, they go together. In fact, in, in the biblical kind of words, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, they are kind of the same words. There's two words, okay? So there's, um, I think I have it here, yeah. So justice in the Hebrew is the word mishpat, and righteousness is that word that I'm not even going to try and say, okay? And um, they are translated as being just, or the righteousness word is actually more like being right, okay? And these two words go together over 30 times in the Bible in the Old Testament, right? And so we see this for one example of all of these times they go together is in Jeremiah chapter 22. This is what the Lord says, do what is just, mishfad, and right, tzedakah. Anyone want to correct me? rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been wronged. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. They, they go together. In simple terms, justice is about making things right according to God's rightness. Is this, is this landing? Yeah. Justice is about doing things right according to God's rightness. So it will result in what we might call social justice, right? Social justice is about doing just things in the right way, and the right way is God's way. And so that's why we need to know God's heart and ways. And so Fleming Rutledge says this, the Christian hope is founded on the promise of God that all things will be made new according to His righteousness. And so the way, the way that we use justice today, as I kind of alluded to there at the start, is tricky. And it's seriously reductionist. It's reduced and it's limited. And we need to blow it up into the big wide lens of the heart of God if we're going to get a right understanding of justice. Because we want to use the word justice on our terms. The world wants to use the word justice on its terms for its agenda. Okay? And we're living in tricky, tricky days, people, church, follower of Jesus. We're living in tricky days where we have to, with compassion but with love, and with love, we have to understand the rightness of God and express it with compassion. Yeah? And so this is why this is so relevant. Because in the world today, people actually want, they want the words and they want the... The, the, the values of the kingdom, right? So there's no problem today talking to secularists, atheists about tolerance, about justice, yeah? There's no about equality. Like they, they, they want all, they just want the kingdom without the king. They want the kingdom, but not on the king's terms. 
They want the kingdom on their terms. And so I think this is really, really relevant for us to try and get this right. And we might not even always get it right, but we're setting our hearts towards Jesus today and to where his understanding of it. And so we have to get our eyes on God. We have to get our eyes on who God is to try and understand this fully. Just to further the point, Fleming Rutledge goes on to say, clearly human justice is a very limited enterprise compared to the ultimate making right of God in the promised day of judgment. God is a God of justice. And the good news is, he is going to put it all right. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that one day, you know, what is it? Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. Yeah? God's going to put it all right. One day, justice and righteousness is going to flow. God is going to deal with evil. He's going to deal with it. Right? And so, <clears throat> I, 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 I'm, I'm confident in that fact. I, I know God is a God of love, and everything he does flows from that love, which we're going to see in a moment. But I am glad that God is a God of justice. He's going to put it right. And I want to get caught up for all my opinion and all my conjecture and all the things that I can think about how things should be done. I have come to realize at this point in my life that I am glad things are going to be put right on God's terms. And as we go through this more, hopefully you will concur with me. <clears throat> Thank God our hope, Christian promise, is in the fact that God is going to put things right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yeah? And yet what we want to go into this morning, and what I want to try and help you understand this morning, as the story unfolds, as the God story, as we read through the Bible, what we start to see is a God <clears throat> who, while being just, I don't know what other way to say it other than he kind of holds back justice. He holds back from enforcing justice whenever there is a chance that mercy might win the day. That's what it seems to be throughout the Bible. And as the Bible unfolds, it seems to show us that more and more. And so, for example, in Psalm 103, it tells us this, which is an amazing psalm all on its own right. It says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Isn't this good news this morning? I know, I know it's like maybe a bit of a teach, but this is actually really good news. He doesn't do justice, like, and if he did the way that we think he should, then we wouldn't be here because he doesn't actually treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't treat us and repay us according to the iniquities we have done. He's a God of compassion, and it unfolds. God's judgment comes on God's terms. Now listen to this. God's judgment comes in God's terms, but the good news is that God's terms are wrapped up and entwined with long-suffering, love, and compassion, right? So God's terms for justice are compassion <laughs> and mercy and love. The judge of all the earth is a compassionate father. The writer of the book of Hebrews talks about the discipline of God, but he does it in such a way that he helps us realize that we can only understand judgment 
and justice through the lens of a loving parent. God is not some cranky reactionary deity. He is a loving parent exercising his good will and his good purposes on and over humanity. Tim Keller wrote a great book, but it's just a great title, which kind of captures what I was trying to say called uh, Generous Justice. Because God is a God who will put things right, as I've said. He's going to restore the world to its original order. But the justice that God enforces, if that's the way to put it, is actually a generous one. It's full of compassion. And here's a few more examples through the Old Testament, just to try and help us really get a biblically informed understanding of this. God's very throne is established on justice, but it's expressed in incredibly compassionate ways. Psalm 103 again, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God presenting himself to the world as a father full of compassion, suffering with his kids in an incredibly broken world where things just don't go the way that we dreamed or we hoped they might. And God presents himself to us as a father who has compassion. Some of us need to know that today. And one day, he's going to make it all right. But in the meantime, when you can't see that rightness, he's full of compassion. He's co-suffering with you, right? Isaiah 49. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me, right? So God, in a sense, had to give them up because of their constant rebellion. But he didn't really give them up. He had to allow the consequences of their sin to be met on them for them to actually get the message because God had given them so many chances. And even when it looked like he'd given them up, God says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? No, she may forget. I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back. And those who led you waste apart from me. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you as surely as they live, declares the Lord. You will wear them all as ornaments and you will put them on like a bride. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born. This is incredibly emotive language, right? This is, this is the all-powerful God who will judge the nations full of compassion for his people. Yeah. Let's look at one more. Hosea. This is to the northern kingdom who had, um, no, sorry, the southern kingdom, but they had moved against the Lord in so, in so many ways. Look, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. Right? So th- th- I want you to not, try not just to see these words on the screen, but feel the emotion of God in this. Right? They were called, but the more, the, the more they were called, the more I called them to myself, the more they went away. They sacrificed to the bales, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taken them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. 
Look, I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed him. Now, think of this language of God, who is having to judge his people, but describing them. I'm the one that taught you how to walk. I'm the one who who drew you with cords of love, held you up to my face like a baby, like you'd hold a baby to your parents' cheek. And then he says, will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. They're so stubborn, they're so stuck and hard-hearted on rebellion that they're determined to turn from them, from God. And then, even though they call on me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. And it's like, it's like I should have probably started a new paragraph there because it looks like God, He has to give them up. And then look at the turn. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like these places. How can I make you like Zeboiah? My heart is changed within me. Look at these words. All my compassion is aroused. <laughs> In the midst of God's brokenness, all his compassion is aroused. Something is aroused in his heart. That is not theory. That is emotional, emotional, relational language that's being used from the God who judges the nations. He's talking about the compassion that he has on those he loves. This is the language of a loving parent, despite his people bent on rebellion. And then we're told throughout the prophets and throughout the Psalms and all of those kind of beautiful Old Testament prophecies, we're told by the prophets um, the thing in all these words of the prophets of the Old Testament is pointing in hope to the one who is to come. These words that we hear from the prophets speaking about this God, once, if we were to take more time today, and I'll, I'll refer to one of them in a moment, we would see that they start to point to one who is coming, to a deliverer, to one who will execute this kind of level of justice. And they begin to prophesy about a coming deliverer who will deliver them from the destruction that they've found themselves in because of their rebellion. And this, of course, is reference to who? To Jesus, right? One who is coming to bring justice. Andy Crouch says this, you cannot understand Jesus and his mission without understanding the biblical yearning for justice. And Jesus' announcement that he was the fulfillment of that yearning. It's like the whole world is yearning and groaning for someone that will come, a just one who will do things right. And we can say definitively, you cannot have Jesus without justice. And so these words that are coming through the Psalms and the, and the prophets, why do the evil prosper? Yeah. Why does all this stuff happening to the good and the righteous people? Will God act to deliver the poor and the blind and the oppressed? And all of these answers, all of these questions begin to get answered in Jesus. And then what happens as we start to look closely at these prophecies of this deliverer who will come to execute justice, we realize that it's different than what we may expect. 
So this one who's coming to deliver them from justice is coming in a way that's going to knock everyone off their feet. It's going to like surprise them because the one who is all-powerful coming to bring justice is going to come loving, serving, sacrificial. The just God is going to come as a suffering servant, right? And so we could quote loads of different passages here, but let me quote Isaiah 42, talking about the suffering servant, the one who's going to come. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring, look, he will bring justice to the nations, right? So there's one coming that's going to bring justice to the nations, but what's he going to look like? Is he going to look like Pompey of Rome at the time? Is he going to look like Alexander the Great who conquered all of part of the Middle East and called himself the one who would bring justice? Is he going to look like the prince of Persia? Who, who is he going to look like? He's not going to look like all the warlords of the day who said they were bringing justice. This is what the one who will bring justice to the nations looks like. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. So that sounds like he's going to be gentle. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. And so what we see here is a God who is relentless in bringing justice. He will not falter till he establishes justice. He's going to bring justice to the nations. But how is he going to do it? This is how, if you're feeling bruised this morning, he's not going to stamp on you. And if you feel like your lights are about to go out, he'll not snuff it out. In fact, he's going to come and he's going to bring his justice compassionately and gently. And he's actually going to flip the world upside down because that love is so powerful it's going to conquer sin and death and hell. This is a king of gentle power. It's power. It's power to raise the dead. It's power to heal the sick. It's a power to forgive sins. But they're at the heart of it is compassion. A compassionate deliverer. And this is the kind of justice that we see throughout Jesus' life. Think of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Is Jesus happy with what she's doing? No. He tells her before he finishes his interaction with her, go and sin no more. Is he gentle with her? You better believe it. When everybody else is harsh and condemning and hard-hearted, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus isn't. Jesus is going to bring justice. He wants to make things right. And sleeping with lots of men isn't the right thing to do. But how is he going to correct that? Through compassion, through gentleness. He's going to believe in the power of love to transform this woman's life. Think of Zacchaeus, <laughs> the tax collector, that like thieving, conniving little man 
Yeah. Does Jesus want to make things right? Yes, of course he does. Is Jesus happy with how Zacchaeus is living his life? No, he's not. How does Zacchaeus get transformed so that he pays back four times what he's stolen? That sounds like making things right to me through, through compassion. Let's go to your house for dinner, Zacchaeus, right? And then salvation visits his house. Think about the Samaritan woman at the well who Jesus, as a Jew, should have no dealings with. <laughs> how, how does Jesus see justice come through compassion? And then think for a moment of the cross and the Roman centurions who represented everything that was unjust about the world for a Jew. Think about the Roman centurions and how they represented everything that the Jews were believing that their deliverer was coming to release them from. And as they drive nails into his hands and feet, Jesus is praying, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Jesus is going to see justice come. He's going to make things right. But he's going to do it in the most compassionate act that the world has ever seen. Yeah? And that's why we can say today, even when it comes to the cross, and we think of our own salvation for a moment, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to, receive by, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. We could easily, because I just taught you those two words about justice and, and righteousness, we could easily probably paraphrase that and say, he did this to have justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand and punished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, or he did this to make justice, right? At the present time, so to be, this is a key phrase, the just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What does that mean? That means Jesus was making sure that justice was going to be done. So he was the just, but he was also the justifier. And so the way that Jesus is going to have justice is by becoming the one who justifies through the most compassionate, kind, self-sacrificial act that has ever happened in the history of the world. And it splits history today still because of its power. This is our God. <laughs> what a gospel we have. What a good news message we have. And uh, what I want us to try and get today is that we don't have to think that Jesus had to change God's mind about us. God has always been forgiven. What Jesus is doing is revealing to us that God is the most compassionate being that we could ever Imagine, think about the prodigal son in this regard for a moment. God didn't make the prodigal son pay. Right? Sure he didn't. He didn't have to pay anything when he was coming back. But the, the prodigal son knew on human terms that justice would have to be done. And for justice to be done for the prodigal son, he knew that that would mean going back and becoming a, like one of the servants, even lower, because he would have to pay for something. Right? He would have to pay for his sins. But in a sense, he'd already paid for his sins, the consequences of them, living in a pigsty and all that came with that. <laughs> and when the father sees him, 
The father, full of compassion, waiting for him to come home, runs to him, gathers up his robe, deals with the reputation of a son that had betrayed him. And he takes the shame. He bears the shame of a son who makes wayward choices so that the ceremony can happen where the son can come home. Justice is done, but justice is done on God's terms, and God's terms are written in his own blood, full of compassion. And this is who we are called to be. It's unbelievable, really. It, it is really, really unbelievable. It doesn't happen in the world in which we live. This is central to who we are, which is why by the time we get to near the end of the Bible, the apostolic writers could say to us, mercy triumphs over judgment because they realize that when they see Jesus and as they look back at these scriptures in the ancient text that in the midst of all this judgment language, how can I give you up? How can I give you up? You're like a child. How can I give you up? And then we see in Jesus a life modeled with justice and compassion. So that by the time the early church writers are writing about what it is to be a Christian, <laughs> they tell us that mercy will triumph over justice. And so for the last few minutes here, I want us to think about how we walk like Jesus in compassion and with a desire to fight for justice. We become these kind of people. Now, you can't do that without the Spirit of God. So we fight for justice. But this is, this is hard stuff. We fight for justice. We, we become like Jesus. So we fight for justice for the 39 people that were caught in that awful atrocity in the back of that lorry. We fight for justice for them. But if the guy who drove the lorry comes in here next Sunday, Is there consequences for his actions? Yes. Should he have to bear them? Yes. What does Jesus do? It provokes us in all the wrong ways, doesn't it? <laughs> and it should. Because if we're going to like live this stuff out, if we're actually going to practice the way of Jesus, if we're actually going to become like him, we realize that he is not just the just, but the justifier of he, of those who are being saved. And the reality is, I don't want to do that in and of myself. I don't want to be that kind of a person. So back to the very first talk that we did on this series, we can only be these people through the infilling of the Holy Spirit through the constant, desperate desire to have His Spirit move in us in such a way that we feel the brokenness of the world, that we take on not just the power of His resurrection, but we fellowship with Jesus in His suffering because one day everything would be made right and we groan with the world. We groan with creation. We feel the pain. And as we groan out those prayers, and as we groan out those tears, we join with all of creation, waiting for justice, 
But justice on God's terms, full of love, full of compassion, where one day everything will be made right, where one day everything will be put in order. And the new order, the new order that is coming is rushing into the present now. That's who we're called to be as the people of God. And as I talk just about feeling it, let me just give you this verse. Jesus, when it tells us in Matthew chapter 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It's interesting that God is looking people who have compassion like him. So he has compassion. And then that verse about the workers. So what if the challenge today is God wants people who has compassion like he does? So it wasn't necessarily to go and do a big evangelistic campaign. It kind of was, but maybe not the way that we think it was. It was people who, who have compassion on them. That's what links the part that Jesus had, compassion on the people because they were sheep without a shepherd. And then he says, prayer for laborers. It's like, would you pray for people that just don't talk a good Christian game, but actually feel what I feel? That's what we need, and that's what we need out in the fields. We need people who are going to feel... And this is what this word compassion means. I'm not even going to try and pronounce that, right? There's a praise at the end for anyone who gets it right, right? But it's to have, look at the meaning, to have the bowels yearn. <laughs> to feel sympathy, to, have, to be moved with compassion. It's like, the, it's like when we, something happens inside us where we feel people's pain. This is what the theologians call the pathos of God, the part of God that is engaged and feels the pain of a broken humanity. And Jesus is praying for harvesters who feel like he feels. So don't ever deny those tears that start to trickle down your face when you watch the news or when you hear a story. Or don't start to deny that part of you that feels you can't not keep walking past that person that's begging because that is the compassion of God. And that is what he is calling us to. A desire to see the new order, justice flow like a river, and it will always look like compassion. That's what he's calling us to be, and that's what I believe Jesus is looking for in the world today. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord for harvesters, for ones that look on the crowds like he does and feel stuff deep inside them, deep inside them. And sometimes, you know, I, I have this kind of propensity to feel over-responsible for everything uh, to the point where it kind of gets a bit like a negative kind of thing because then I feel guilty for not being able to fix everything. But it felt like the Lord has said to me over the last few while, you know, Alan, you don't necessarily, you can't necessarily fix everything, but you know what? The fact that you feel it, the fact that you feel it, don't ever, ever stop feeling it. Don't ever, ever Stop letting it disturb you. Don't ever, ever start denying it and start to push that down. The fact that the world is the way it is and things are going on the way they are, don't ever let that stop disturbing you and provoking you and hurting you <laughs> in all the kind of right ways because that's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. This is the compassion of God. We make ourselves present with suffering because that's what God does. 
And that's what Jesus does, even with those who disagree with us. And so, as I try and wrap this up, and more stuff, let me just try, let me just try and wrap this up by saying, I was going to talk about St. Francis, but I won't. Here's what we need to do, just to practically finish this off. How do we become these kind of people? We grow in sonship. We become like Jesus. You see, it's, it's easy for it to become our own sort of sympathy, right? It's easy for it to become our own. And then the problem is, this is why it's so important to get our eyes on God, because loads of us get a kick out of being the rescuer. Yeah, you know, and then, and, then, and then what happens is people get dependent on us rather than to doing God. And so we have to learn how to reflect God, but how to realize it's, it's God's compassion. So we grow in sonship. Jesus, when he took up the towel to be a servant, it says that Jesus knew where he came from and knew where he was going, so he took up the towel. That's really interesting, isn't it? That means he knew who, he knew who he was. He wasn't doing it to try and get something out of it for himself to feel more holy, <laughs> right? He, he just knew that part of being a son and being secure in your own identity as a son would mean a life overflowing with compassion. And so first and foremost, it's really important. And I really feel that the Holy Spirit wants to do this at the moment. If there's a word that describes what the Holy Spirit is doing across our churches, and particularly if we've went into this do it again theme on Sunday nights in Lurgan as well, and in our corporate prayer time if you were there on Wednesday night, what the Holy Spirit is doing at the moment is he's, he's tenderizing our hearts. He, he wants us to become a... He wants us to realize that the way we're going to win the world is through gentle power. It's through compassionate justice. But it's, it's his presence. It's his presence that does the tenderizing. It's his presence. That, and, and what starts to happen is you start to walk into rooms or you start to walk into f- f- your family places and you realize what, what you're carrying is powerful. Par- like powerful, but it's it's gentle. And if there's going to be any revival, which I'm praying that there will be, and believe in God there will be, I believe that's going to be one of the characteristics, a revival of gentle power. And as charismatics, particularly those of us brought up in Pentecostal churches where we've seen power wielded, like from the stage, or an abusive kind of, controlling leaderships. We have to relearn this because that's not what power is. Power, the power of God is a bruised reed he will not stamp out and a smoldering flax he will not snuff out. So we grow in sonship. We lean in in prayer. We pray this kind of prayer. Break my heart for what breaks yours. There's a disclaimer with this kind of thing, though, right? It will mess your life up. It will wreck your life in all the ways it's supposed to. When you pray the prayer, which I did as a young man and continue to try to pray. Looking back, I prayed it with all the passion in the world, but rather naively, and it was probably good because I didn't know all it was going to mean. But have I found Jesus in the midst of it? Oh, yeah. because that's where he is, right in the brokenness of our world. And when we pray that prayer, you see, it's the perfect tension between an intimacy with God 
and an involvement with the world because we need to be close to God to feel his heart. And then when we do, we can't not act. I love Martin Luther King in this. Power without love is reckless and abusive. Love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. Thirdly, we need to have a biblical worldview of justice, which is why I've tried to teach it the way we did today. We have a biblical understanding of justice, which I'll, in the last slide in a moment will summarize. And then we need what I just described there. We need the constant infilling of the Holy Spirit because one of our greatest desires was that we realize that compassion is more than a compassion project. Compassion is more than the outward-focused Christmas, as important as that is. That's just one expression of a life of Jesus and his heart in us, which can only come through the infilling of the Spirit. Because when you get involved, when you pray that prayer, you just take it for granted that you're going to get hurt. You take it for granted that you're going to be taken for granted. (laughs) And so the only way to do that with any kind of longevity is to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. And so to summarize all this, Jesus is king. His kingdom is social. In other words, it looks like it's about a people, right? It's not some, his rule and reign comes amongst a people. The social, I should say group, sorry, is called the church. The church is an agent of God's justice. Justice is the vision of the king. The king models justice and calls for it, none less so than given his own life. And he summons this group to this task. And at the heart of this task is the great commandment, to love God and love one another. It's interesting, it's one commandment, (laughs) not two, because loving God and loving one another kind of becomes one in Jesus. Because the cross is both vertical and horizontal. Loving God, loving one another. Justice is done through the act, the most, the, the most compassionate act ever. And it's to this that Jesus calls us. A life of justice, a life of carrying the vision of the king for his kingdom, reign and rule, which will flow with justice and righteousness. But it's expressed, and it is only ever expressed, with compassion and with love, and with kindness. Because this is what changes the world. And this is what epitomizes the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Amen. You stand to your feet with me, and let me pray before we finish. take a moment, can we just take a moment in the silence and just allow the Holy Spirit just to maybe remind you of just one or two things have been said or maybe just the, the general sense of God's Spirit working this morning just allow that to settle on your heart
thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If you're comfortable, just do a prayer. Why don't we just hold out our hands and let the Holy Spirit just rest upon us this morning. Holy Spirit, we just want to recognize that you lead us into truth and ultimately you lead us to Jesus. And we just recognize you, Jesus, as the servant king. The father of the fatherless, the defender of the widows. The one who is making all things new according to your righteousness. And so, Lord Jesus, we want to be not just hearers of this word, but doers also. But we realize, Lord, that we need your presence. We need your spirit. We're desperate, O oh Lord. We realize where our human limitations only get us to. We realize that we can only have justice so much on our terms and our own strength. We recognize that we get compassion, fatigue, in and of our own strength, that we just get tired of brokenness around us in our lives and in our families. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you now. And so we ask you to come and fill us. We ask you to soften our hearts. We ask you to melt what is broken in us, or what is hard in us, God, and to heal what is broken in us. And I just want to pray, God, in these moments for anyone here who just needs the compassion, the compassion of a loving Heavenly Father, a fresh revelation of that in their own heart, to know that you are suffering with them and that your presence, despite the pain, is and can be more than enough. And so, Lord, would you pour that into hearts here this morning? And, Lord, would you give us a passion to see your kingdom that flows with justice and righteousness come in the world in which we live, in the world that we'll enter again tomorrow, the spheres of influence that we carry ourselves in. We pray that your justice and righteousness would be written on our hearts afresh today. And Lord, that you would fill us and empower us with your Holy Spirit to do that faithfully and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.